History Zine, show number 19. The music I've chosen for this episode is by Gustav Holst. It's suite number one in E-flat, played by the United States Marine Band. You'll be able to download it at museopen.com. I've chosen this particular piece because in this episode of History Zine, we'll be talking about the Battle of Odenard. The Battle of Odenard is a very free-flowing battle. A lot of it is a mad rush by the Allies to get on the battlefield. And so many battalions and squadrons changing places all the time and rushing from one point of the battlefield to another. And I think you'll hear most of that. There's a very scurrying pace to the music and then some lovely free-flowing bits in the middle. So I hope you enjoy it and I hope you enjoy the show. Well, it's been an interesting time since last I spoke to you. I've recently found employment after being off work for six months, so I'm looking forward to getting stuck into that. And I've been doing a few other history-related things. I'll tell you about a few of those in the podcast. I've recently joined a UK organisation called the Battlefields Trust. And maybe you're wondering why. Because effectively they're fighting for the preservation of what are nothing more than a series of fields. But As you might have guessed, I think it's so much more than that. Battles are some of the most traumatic events which can happen to any peoples. The horror, the brutality and the sheer viciousness of such an event warps the nature and culture of everyone involved and everyone in the area of that battle. It scars us all to such an extent that the shockwaves of a battle can still be felt many hundreds of years after the event. It's imperative that we remember such horrific events and learn the lessons from them. And the preservation of these battlefields and research into these events can help us to learn from and remember them. We need the information there on the battlefields and we need to be able to look out on such vistas and envisage the carnage that was wrought there. Yes, we may need roads, mining and gravel pits, but not at the expense of these memorials of why and how our ancestors fought and died. The Battlefields Trust was founded as a result of a resolution at an international conference entitled Ancient Battlefields as National Treasures at Leicester University, England in 1991, arranged by Kelvin van Herselt. The spur to set up the trust was the fact that the battlefield of Naseby, then a perfectly preserved site of the decisive battle of the English Civil War, was to be bisected with a motorway link during 1992, the 350th anniversary year of the English Civil War. In any listing of the top 20 most important battlefields of the world, Naseby would appear. 
never again would people be able to appreciate this battlefield in its entirety and follow the line of Prince Rupert's charge and his attack on the parliamentary baggage train, an action which deprived King Charles of the bulk of his cavalry at the crucial moment of the battle, as his infantry were being surrounded. Delegates at the conference resolved to set up an organisation to ensure such tragedies did not reoccur. In 1993, the Battlefields Trust was registered as a charity, with Tony and Valmai Holt, founders of Major and Mrs Holt's Battlefield Tours, making a most generous donation, which helped to pay the legal costs. So, I hope there I've given some indication as to the importance of the Battlefields Trust. I hope many of you, particularly the UK listeners, will go along to the Battlefields Trust website at battlefieldstrust.com and consider joining up. For those of you in the rest of the world, I urge you to look for similar societies in your own countries and do what you can to preserve your battlefields as a memorial to our dead ancestors. Now, I've talked a little there about the importance of the Battlefields Trust as an organisation, but for we history geeks, it's also a fine place to find people of a similar inclination. They run numerous battlefield tours by some very knowledgeable people. My local branch in Norfolk, East Anglia, put on regular talks by renowned historians. I've attended two of these recently. The first was a Marlborough study day with Richard Holmes, author of Marlborough, England's Fragile Genius, and James Faulkner, author of Great and Glorious Days, a book which covers in considerable detail the War of the Spanish Succession Battles of Blenheim, Ramillais, Ordenard, and Malplaquet. Richard Holmes had to dash off quickly, but I managed to grab a few words with James Faulkner after the talk. I have that interview here for you now. Hope you enjoy it. This is James Faulkner, author of Great and Glorious Days. So you you first became interested in military history. What was it about Marlborough then that attracted you? Serving in Germany, I was able to go to all, all the usual battlefields, Minden, Waterloo, but also Blenheim, Bramley's, Malplaquet, Oudenard, Fontenoy, and it was something about Marlborough's battlefields that, that particularly appealed. Partly, I think, because people tended to concentrate on Wellington and Waterloo in particular yeah. uh, whereas to my mind Marlborough seemed to be more intriguing because there was less known about it so there was more to ferret out Absolutely. So why do you think that is? Well I think the, 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 fascination, the apparent fascination with Wellington is because he won Waterloo mm-hmm. uh, okay, You could say Blucher won Waterloo or they won it, they won it together yeah. but, but there was a final dramatic end to Wellington's military career which Marlborough did not achieve Marlborough in the end was dismissed Yes. And and you could, if you look at, look at him dispassionately, you would say that he actually failed in his objective. He had many successes, but he failed in his object in the end. And I, and I think Wellington and Waterloo in particular exert such fascination because this finality of the, the grand victory, Wellington and Blucher riding forward, Napoleon never recovers, bang bang, very dramatic. So uh, we've had this talk this afternoon, and one of the things that kept coming up, I think, I think both you and Richard Holmes mentioned it, about not being able to win the war. You know, won so many battles. What could Marlborough have done 
differently to win the war? I think the failing was in the, the councils of state of the Grand Alliance. With Marlborough's victory in 1706 at Ramallies, the victory was so, it was so complete, yeah. so unexpected, that no one had a plan to put into place. And instead they became greedy. And they demanded, and they, and they misread Louis XIV. And they demanded of him more than he, would, he could give. Yes. And they overplayed their hand. The net result was that Louis XIV in the end realised that he could almost outstare the Allies. And that one day they would come along and want to talk peace, which of course is what happened in 1713, the Treaty of Utrecht. The war petered out because of exhaustion. Uh, and you got the French prince stayed on the throne of Spain, but you got the Spanish Empire divided. So you didn't get a huge increase in French influence because the Spanish Empire was split up between several different states. The Spanish Netherlands, for example, became the Austrian Netherlands, yes. at least until Napoleonic times. So on to my next question. My next question is, if there were three books, and you can include your own, obviously, there were three books that somebody could buy that would give them a good overall view of the War of the Spanish Succession and Marlborough's role in it, which three books would you pick? Uh, Churchill's Life and Times of the Duke of Marlborough has, has got to be first on the list. Despite its obvious bias. Absolutely. David Chandler's Marlborough's military commander. Mm-hmm. And my own great and glorious days. Absolutely. I think, I think they complement each other. Yes, I think they do. If, if Blenheim hadn't happened, if Ramillies hadn't happened, what would Europe look like today? Well, that is an almost impossible question to answer because would there still have been a war of Austrian succession and would there have still been a seven years war would there have been a French revolution if Louis XIV had been checked would the absolutism of French royal power have been unbearable in the mid 18th century would you have had the rise of Prussia would you have had the rise of Germany so it's very difficult to say what you can say I think is that the war of Spanish succession ruined Holland Holland was bankrupt yes. and went into a decline as a, a world power whereas Britain on the other hand went on to become a world power and I think without the war of Spanish succession that would not have happened the, the rivalry in terms of a trading empire between Britain and Holland would have gone on mm-hmm. and Britain's rise to world eminence which took place over the next 150 years say would have been much less certain I think that's the main difference I would suggest I suppose so but spinning off from that the Dutch Republic should have done quite well out of this war I mean they spent massive amounts and they poured a lot of troops into this war yes. but they, they come out of it with the fortress barrier they come out of it with should be should have their trade still intact how come the Dutch Republic does so poorly out of the war firstly they were bankrupt they spent all their money on fighting the war right. secondly the terms of the Treaty of the Utrecht were particularly favourable towards Great Britain at the expense of Holland and Great Britain was able to go on to develop its overseas empire in a way the Dutch couldn't could no longer do but also I do feel that the Dutch had it had cost the Dutch so much and they had suffered so much that they almost went into a little Holland mode and they lost their pretensions to be a great world power oh I see yes so they, it's like being in a massive contest and feeling I can't take that anymore not, not, do, not do this anymore yes. there must be a better way of living or whatever <laughs> yes. uh, and so I think that is that is why if, if there are any losers in the war I think it was Holland yes thank you very much okay. pleasure
now it's time for the History Zine podcast review spot. This time, I want to review A History of Rome by Mike Duncan. The history of Rome is exactly what it says it is. It's the history of Rome, and it's produced very regularly indeed by Mike Duncan. The series has now reached episode 92 and the reign of Marcus Aurelius. All the episodes are available on his site at thehistoryofrome.typepad.com. The podcast is very simple in style. Just Mike and a mic working chronologically through the history of Rome using the various events and emperors as markers along the way. It's all quite low-key, but most of the time absolutely riveting. I'll do you a quick bio of Mike Duncan. He grew up outside of Seattle and has a degree in political science and philosophy from Western Washington University. He has a deep and abiding love for Roman history, but he's also a hardcore political junkie and lives for Seattle Mariners baseball. Thankfully for someone like me who has no interest in baseball and only a minor interest in US politics, he stays very much on topic during the podcast. Occasionally, He'll mention some event or family thing which will involve him going off somewhere with Mrs. History of Rome and therefore not doing any recording for a while. But it all feels very tight and focused on the subject. It gives us just enough so we can see he's a human and probably a really nice guy and stops there. Cracking on with the story and holding us transfixed by the comings and goings of the Romans and their many and varied activities. It's a podcast which is mostly concerned with the political machinations of the Empire and its emperors. But it does take a few sneak peeks at the culture and habits of the various Roman peoples. The history of Rome is a vast topic, but he's working through it steadily and with delightful sure-footedness. He tells us the facts, but he also tells us the sensational stories of sometimes questionable veracity. However, he does warn us of the dangers inherent in retelling tales drawn from so few sources. Such writers as Suetonius and Livy owed much to their patrons, and any time when we use them as a sole source, then we must try to remain as aware of the influence upon them as we possibly can be. In summary, a fine podcast a low-key, straightforward, and, as far as a non-classicist such as myself can tell, trustworthy retelling of the history of Rome. Highly recommended. linguistic history trivia bit this time I want to look at the word ye often you see in old history books such phrases as ye old tea shop or even ye duke of Marlborough this sounds wonderfully archaic and is often quite frankly downright confusing it looks and sounds extremely pretentious to our 21st century years 
Apparently this usage came about due to a printer's interpretation of what was called the Thorn character, which we pronounce as th, and spell th. As a result, old texts are littered with this curious y character, which often makes for difficult reading. It'll take some time to retrain yourselves, but you will find so many of these texts become a lot easier to read once you substitute the y for th giving you the old tea shop or the duke of marlborough rather than all these weird ye things it does however make things more complicated when you find that there is a perfectly legitimate use for the word ye which arises when you're using it as the plural for thou or even as second person singular ye peoples of the plain or o ye of little faith but then that's language for you a delightful mishmash of twisty turns and phrases. So there you are. When you see the Y character in old texts, replace it for th, except for times when you don't. Clear as mud, huh? And now it's War of the Spanish Succession time. Welcome to History Zine's special feature, which is currently the War of the Spanish Succession. This is a European war of the early 18th century, which began over the disputation of the Spanish throne, which was left vacant after the death of Carlos II. The throne was bequeathed to Philip, Duke d'Anjou, grandson of Louis XIV, King of France. This led to much concern as the European countries mulled over the dangers of an expansionist France dominating the territories of Spain. The Austrian Habsburg king, Leopold I, put his forces in the field opposing France and supporting his own claimant to the Spanish throne, the Archduke Charles of Austria. The Dutch and the English joined the war on the side of Austria, opposing France, and so the struggle commenced. The war raged throughout Italy, Germany, the Spanish Netherlands, that's more or less what we now know as Belgium, and even Spain. France was the dominant power in Europe at the time, and her armies were considered invincible. However, the alliance was fortunate enough to be blessed with a number of brilliant generals, such as Overkirk, Prince Eugène, and John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough. At the great battles of Blenheim and Ramillies, they had demonstrated that the French could be beaten in open battle, and effectively ended the continued expansion of French territory. The French were still a potent force, though, and in 1707 the Allies suffered a number of setbacks, including their defeat at Almanza and the failure of the siege of Toulon. Something remarkable was needed once more in the year 1708. And it is, of course, 1708 we wish to look at in this episode. been the usual jockeying for position during the winter. Money must be obtained to continue the war. There needs to be negotiations for troops. Strategy must be determined. The pressure was on England for a campaign in Spain. The parliamentary Whig party seemed convinced that the war would be won on the Spanish peninsula. 
whereas it seems from the troop numbers that the Duke of Marlborough was convinced that it would be fought and won in Flanders and in France itself. This seems to make sense to me. It may be called the War of the Spanish Succession, but the principal opponent in this war is France and Louis XIV. He must be defeated before any other gains can be made. Marlborough reassured Parliament that Prince Eugène himself would be sent to Spain to fight a great campaign there. At the same time, he arranged matters so that no great Allied army would be present in Spain, and therefore ensuring that the Austrian court would not allow Prince Eugène to be put at the head of so few troops. As a result of these manoeuvres, he got what he was probably angling for, himself and Prince Eugène at the head of a large force in the Spanish Netherlands, threatening the borders of France. Unfortunately for the Allies, the French also had plans for the Spanish Netherlands, and emboldened by their successes of the previous year, launched fast and decisive attacks into the fortress zone. The timing was perfect. This area had been won for the Allies in 1706, but the Dutch had taken over the administration, and too eager to recoup some of their war costs, they attacked it heavily. The Spanish Netherlands felt ill-used, and were all too eager to betray their Dutch garrisons, and allow the French to retake the fortresses, with barely a shot fired. Ghent and Bruges fell to the French, so putting the Allied army in a very awkward position indeed. Ghent was the key to the rivers and waterways of Flanders, and Bruges cut off any waterborne traffic coming from Ostend on the coast. This single stroke seemed to put pay to any possibilities of the Allies moving heavy siege equipment deep into the fortress zone and toward France. Brigadier Grumkow, the Prussian commissary, wrote this to Frederick I. The blow which the enemy dealt us did not merely destroy all our plans, but was sufficient to do irreparable harm to the reputation and previous good fortune of my Lord Duke, and he felt this misfortune so keenly that I believed he would succumb to this grief early the day before yesterday, as he was so seized by it that he was afraid of being suffocated. Now, I've read you that quote for two reasons. One, to show some of the suffering of the Duke of Marlborough. Those of you who have read the Richard Holmes book, England's Fragile Genius, will be only too well aware of how much the Duke suffered from high blood pressure and what was almost certainly migraine attacks. This period here was one in which he was in a great deal of pain and was rendered almost immobile with it. Secondly, I think this quote shows just how fragile a position it was to be a war hero at that time. It wasn't enough to have been the principal commander in the great Allied victories of Blenheim and Ramillies. To maintain such status, a general must continue to achieve victories ever onwards. Your status, it seems, is largely determined by your most recent campaign. The French were dominating the action in Flanders, and they moved south to lay siege to the fortress city of Odenade. The Allies, however, had predicted this move, and Lord Carrigan hurriedly pushed forward to take up camp near Odenade in Lessines. The French army decided to withdraw from Ordenard and pull back a little. Their position looked comfortable as they waited to connect up with their reinforcements 
under the Marshal Berwick. They encountered the vanguard of the Allied army at Lessine, but all their reports told them that the Duke of Marlborough, with the vast bulk of his army, was possibly as much as fifty miles away. The truth of the matter was very different indeed. In a bold attempt to bring the French to battle, the Allies were now engaged in a forced march, which placed them much closer than the French general, Marshal Vendôme, could possibly imagine. And on the morning of the 11th of June, Cardigan and his troops began crossing the River Scheldt at Inam, near Audenarde, to be followed only a few hours later by Marlborough at the head of the entire Allied army. The operation had now become a frantic race to get into position. Pontu bridges were thrown over the river Scheldt, and troops began pouring across. The main French army was now only six miles away, at the river crossing at Garve. No alarm was raised. Possibly they thought this was merely a foraging party, sent out from Audenard, and by 1pm Cardigan had got his advance guard across the bridges, and was beginning to form a battle line which would hopefully halt any attempt the French might make to stop the rest of the Allied army crossing the River Scheldt. It was here they encountered the French flank guard of around 4,000 men under the Marquis de Byron. Four Swiss battalions had been sent outwards to the village of Aisne, and they soon found themselves in close musketry fire with a large number of Scots and Dutch infantry. Hanoverian cavalry came up in support, and the Swiss infantry were soon fleeing across the meadows. Byron gazed on in shock at the proceedings, and immediately sent word to Marshal Vendôme that there were significant numbers of Allied troops in very close proximity indeed. Vendôme refused to believe these reports, as it was only two days ago that Marlborough had been reported as being at Ash, nearly fifty miles away. If they are there, he said, the devil must have carried them, for such marching is impossible. Eventually, he rode forward to take a look himself, and saw the dust cloud of the approaching troops. He grudgingly admitted that there were Allied troops there, but figured it must be only a vanguard, and instructed Byron to attack and drive them back across the Scheldt. He himself would come up in support of Byron's attack. Meanwhile, Marlborough and Eugene had now crossed the Scheldt, and Marlborough was placing a gun battery at the village of Sherkin, to the left of Carrigan. Byron, a little nonplussed at his instructions from Vendôme, made ready to attack, but was overruled by another French marshal, Marshal Matignon, and he told Byron to remain where he was. Vendôme arrived, and asked why there had been no attack. Lieutenant Poissiguer, who was supposed to have unique personal knowledge of the ground, said there was a deep morass between them and the enemy, so making it impossible to attack. Upon hearing this, Vendôme withdrew his reinforcements, leaving Byron unsupported. The Duke of Burgundy, Louis XIV's grandson, had been placed in charge of the army to gain experience and hopefully shower himself in glory. Even though he was nominally in charge, he was placed in the tutelage of the experienced Marshal Vendôme. This difficult situation would be responsible for many of the mistakes the French made this day. Burgundy and Vendôme were on poor terms indeed, and the communication between them was often intemperate at best. Burgundy 
was at the head of the main body of the army, behind the Norken. He decided not to cross, and drew into battle formation behind this stream. Meanwhile, the skirmish with the French flank guard had continued. The Allied cavalry commander, Rantzau, now spotted Byron's twelve squadrons. The blood of his dragoons ran hot from their recent pursuit of the Swiss infantry. They immediately attacked, and as the infantry had done, Byron's cavalry too fled beyond the Norken. But Rantzau continued the pursuit, and ploughed into the left flank of the French army, who were still taking up their positions. There was wild confusion for a time. Prince George of Hanover, who would later become George II of England, was amongst those engaged in this wild charge. He became embroiled in the thick of the action, losing his horse in the process. He was remounted and managed to escape with a large part of the attacking cavalry. The man, Colonel Le Sec, who remounted the prince, giving him his own horse, was not so fortunate. Rantzau withdrew in surprisingly good order from this charge, taking with him many prisoners of rank, together with ten standards, kettle drums and horses. It was possibly this charge which tipped the balance for the French, pulling them into a full-scale battle. The actions of Burgundy prior to this possibly suggest he may not have intended to engage and was intent on holding a defensive line north of the Norken. Blood was up now in the French camp, with many looking to retaliate against Rantzau's charge. At 4pm, the French began to advance from behind the Norken, and the high command took up position at the mill of Royagem, where they could overlook the battlefield. Six battalions were sent by Burgundy to remove the Prussians from the village of Gruenwald. The Prussian forces beat them back, and it is at this point that Marshal Vendôme became involved in this section of the battle. He was drawn towards the struggle, and he halted the retreat of the repulsed battalions, throwing them back into the fray, and drawing six more battalions from the French centre to join the attack on Groenwald. Carrigan now engaged all his sixteen battalions at Groenwald, and repulsed Vendôme once more. Vendôme was now absolutely embroiled in this firefight, and drew more and more of the French troops from the centre to throw into the fray. He sent orders to Burgundy that he should attack with the French left wing, east of Groenwald. There stood Natsma with twenty squadrons of Prussian horse and Rantzau's eight squadrons. They had no supporting infantry, these all being engaged in the firefight around the village. They would have had a very difficult time if the French left had engaged at that point. However, Burgundy was assured there was a deep morass between his left wing and the Allied squadrons, and so did not carry out the order from Vendôme. Captain Jeanette was sent back to Vendôme to explain why this order was not carried out, but he was killed before he could reach Marshal Vendôme. Vendôme was now so caught up in his action against Groenwald, himself fighting hand-to-hand with a pike, that he took no further part in the overall decision-making for the French army that day. Carrigan was being hard-pressed now, and was in danger of being overlapped on his left by the extra forces being thrown into the fray by the French. Fortunately, the Duke of Argyle had crossed the bridges and was now arriving on the battlefield with twenty battalions. They rushed forward to meet the advance of the French right wing, so stretching out the fighting front further along the Dieppenbeck stream. The struggle continued, 
and yet more French troops were brought to bear, threatening to extend even past Argyle's troops. The whole Allied line was forced backwards, but then Lottam, too, crossed the Inam bridges, and arrived with another twenty battalions at 1745. By 1800, the French had been pushed back once more. Marlborough and Nugent were placed between this front and Rantzau's squadrons, watching both sides and keeping a wary eye out for the attack from the French left, which they feared could come at any moment. They were also waiting for Overkirk's troops, which were at this moment making their way across the bridges at Odenard. There were two narrow stone bridges there, and two more pontoon bridges had been erected to speed Overkirk's arrival onto the battlefield. When he arrived, he would be able to push up around the back of the French troops engaged at Gruenwald, straight toward the French high command at Royagem. Unfortunately, Overkirk was delayed, as the two supplementary bridges had failed. There was a mighty congestion in Odenard, as nearly 25,000 men attempted to reach the battlefield via the two stone bridges there. It is at 1800 hours that Marlborough and Eugene agreed to separate. Marlborough managed the left of the Allied battlefront, while Eugene managed the right. Eugene controlled the bulk of the forces, while Marlborough moved to a position where he could keep the French from overlapping his left wing using Lottam's troops, and also managed the arrival of Overkirk onto the battlefield. Eugene commanded Cadogan, Argyle, Natsma, and Rantzau. Marlborough was hard-pressed on the left, but now pushing up from the bridges at Inam, 18 Hanoverian and Hessian battalions arrived, and were waiting in line behind Lottam's troops to join the action. Marlborough now instigated a very complex manoeuvre. Eugène's troops on the right had been pushed back yet again by the French Marshal Vendôme, and he was desperately in need of assistance. Marlborough brought up the Hessians and the Hanoverians and withdrew Lottam's troops between them. He pulled them back and then sent them around to support Eugene on the right. This gave them a small respite from the fighting and enabled them to join Eugene's forces with renewed vigour only 30 minutes later, adding much needed support there. This enabled Eugene to drive the French back yet again. Then at 7 o'clock in the evening, Marlborough sent yet another reinforcement to Eugene. He sent Lumley's cavalry, so freeing up Rantzau and Natsma for offensive action on that side of the battlefront. The gradual arrival of Overkirk's Dutch troops meant he no longer needed the cavalry support that Lumley had provided on his left flank. At about the same time, Eugene launched Rantzau and Natsma at the enemy in a desperate charge. They broke the French squadrons before them, but ran into several battalions of French infantry, and were themselves severely ravaged. The Maison de Rois pushed forward and wrought fearful slaughter amongst the Allied cavalry. Many perished, but this valiant charge bought a good deal of time for the Allies, and helped them retain the fighting initiative. The remnants of the cavalry turned to find shelter behind the ranks of Cadogan and Lottam's battalions. Lumley's cavalry remained on the Allied right, motionless, waiting for any advance by the French left wing, which was still, as yet, unengaged. Marlborough still remained on the Allied left, fighting desperately, but unable to do more than hold his ground against the massive numbers of French infantry being thrown against him. Meanwhile, 
Overkirk's troops were now on the battlefield. The Dutch commander Week had thrown Dutch troops against the French right wing. The 19-year-old Prince of Orange was moving relentlessly past the French right flank up toward Royagem with four brigades of Dutch infantry supported by 12 squadrons of Danish cavalry. He swept aside the French infantry which were turned to face him, made short work of the highly regarded Maison de Roy, and bore in upon Royagem itself. The Duke of Burgundy looked out upon the battlefield and saw the devastation wrought by Natsma's charge, the onward push of Carrigan's troops, and then the destruction of the Maison de Roy to their right. Burgundy saw the advantage slipping away and his troops rapidly becoming encircled. He and the assembled royal princes at Royagem decided quite quickly that this was no longer a healthy place to be. They retreated quickly beyond the Norken to reconsider their position. The hour was now late indeed. It must have been around ten o'clock at night when the French leaders met to consider what they would do next. Vendôme was all for regrouping and continuing the struggle on the morrow, but the rest of the marshals felt that to fight on was to court certain destruction. "'Very well, gentlemen,' said Vendôme. "'I see you all think it best to retire. "'A new Monseigneur,' he said to the Duke of Burgundy. "'I've long had that wish.' "'He gave the order to fall back on Ghent. "'The French army retreated, leaving those still in the field to their fate. "'It was now pitch dark, and many of the French still on the field of battle "'managed to slip away, but some were caught.' by the stratagem of the French Huguenot, wandering amongst them, shouting the names of famous French regiments, and calling them to follow. Those who did were then taken prisoner, and led into the town square at Odenard, to be watched throughout the night. The Allied troops lay on their arms through the night, but in the following morning found many of their adversaries had flown. Although a great number of the French had escaped, it was nevertheless a decisive victory for the Allies, the French had been outthought and outfought in a desperate struggle and were now fleeing from the battlefield toward the safety of Ghent. Had there been just a couple more hours of daylight available to Marlborough and Eugene, then it's quite possible they could have wrought utter devastation upon the French army. They had, however, wrested back the initiative and could plan their next campaign upon the most famous of France's northern fortresses, Lille itself. More of that next time in History Zine. Bye for now.